It's almost time for PFB's 70th annual meeting, November 16th through the 19th. This year's virtual format will capture the excitement of an in-person meeting, including attending educational sessions, networking with other Farm Bureau members, exploring a virtual exhibit hall, and watching our 70th annual meeting celebration, which will celebrate Farm Bureau's accomplishments, recognize the achievements of county Farm Bureaus, and honor award winners. And just for registering... PFB members will receive a free subscription to Positively Pennsylvania, PFB's quarterly magazine connecting you with our state's food and culture, sponsored by IntelliCore Communications and Nationwide. To register, just go to www.pfb.com slash register. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Farm Focus. We'll be talking with Heather Leach from the Department of Entomology at Penn State about the spotted lanternfly infestation that's spreading across Pennsylvania and what it means for farmers. I'd like to apologize for the recording quality of some parts of this episode as we experienced some technical difficulties with our connection during the interview. Um, So my name is Heather Leach. I'm the Spotted Lanternfly Extension Associate with the Department of Entomology at Penn State. What's the state of the spotted lanternfly in Pennsylvania this year? Yeah, so, you know, we're seeing that 2020 populations of spotted lanternfly are quite high. Um, we, we sort of anticipated this going in uh, from last year that, you know, knowing we saw lots of egg masses, we had a very mild winter um, and likely that survival and, and, you know, subsequent populations would be very high. Um, the other thing that's, that's, you know, maybe kind of new this year is that not only is it high in sort of the areas where we've seen spotted lanternfly for the last few years, we're also seeing these new areas of infestation, both within the quarantine zone, but also in these kind of newly quarantined counties. Um, So in March of 2020, the Department of Agriculture in Pennsylvania went from 14 quarantine counties all the way to 26 counties. And then just uh, about a month ago, uh, there was a declaration of a population in Staten Island, New York. We also have populations in New Jersey, uh, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, and West Virginia. Uh, Those other states that you mentioned, is, is that new this year or has that been building Yeah, it's been building. So um, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland have had populations for a little while, as well as Northern Virginia. Uh, But we we see those populations all kind of expanding where they are. So Maryland has declared more counties this year. West Virginia was also also newly declared this year. So it's, we're just seeing kind of this expansion, you know, kind of throughout the Northeast, if you will. And we're also continuing to see um, so uh, the, the farthest detection I believe that I'm aware of is all the way in California. Um, the good thing is that those are all dead bugs. I don't want people to think that, you know, we have populations in California, um, but certainly highlighting that this pest is a good hitchhiker. And so those California finds were actually on airplanes uh, that were uh, flown from Pennsylvania. So again, this bug likes to kind of hitch a ride with us and, and travel to new areas. Wow. Um... Well, when I I had talked to you and Dr. Calvin um, earlier this year for a story, um, and one of the things was that the you had suspected the mild winter had led to this sort of boom. I guess is that what you're, and that's what you're seeing. Yeah, I think it's um, probably a, a couple of different things. So I think the mild winter certainly helped them out. I think the other thing that we're seeing is that 2019 in the fall when they were uh, looking to lay their eggs. 
they had really excellent conditions to do so. Um, so we had we had good weather for that period, and it didn't get too cold too quick. So they still had enough, you know, ample time to lay all of those egg masses that they needed to lay. Versus, say, in 2018, if if you remember, we had that crazy amount of rain. The the host quality, all of the plants that they were feeding on were not very healthy um, and they weren't very healthy themselves. And so we saw just a reduction in the amount of egg laying in 2018 compared to that 2019 year. And I, I mean, I know we can't predict the weather that well, but what is your, um, what's your best guess for the coming year, I guess, with the winter? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've, I've been paying attention to the predictions. We're still pretty far out to really understand what, what's likely to happen, but um, they suspect it'll be very similar to last year in that we might have an early cold snap, uh, but it might be fairly mild as, as far as I understand it. Did the COVID-19, you know, travel restrictions have, have any effect on this? It, it doesn't seem like it did, but yeah, so we got that question a lot in the beginning as, as to whether or not, you know, maybe shutting down um, movement would, would kind of help reduce the spread. The unfortunate thing, if, if you want to say that about the timing of, of when COVID-19 and those travel restrictions really hit, um, was that the life stage of spotted lanternfly wasn't really the one that's typically responsible for the hitchhiking. So we didn't really have that matchup. You know, if, if that would have happened, you know, in that adult stage when they're getting ready to lay eggs, then potentially you'd have that reduction in spread. But because we were in that nymphal stage, we probably, you know, didn't see that much of an impact. It might have assisted a little bit, but again, we still had business that was being conducted. We had those essential workers out. Um, and so I think that probably the, the benefit gained um, is, is pretty, pretty minimal there. So you, you had said uh, you're out in the field right now. What's the nature of your field work at the moment? Yeah, so so in my role, um, again, I'm, I'm an extension associate, um, so I'm responsible for trying to understand sort of what that impact is of spotted lanternfly and figuring out ways that we can manage it and, of course, be communicating with those affected industry groups that are affected by spotted lanternfly in terms of how we best manage it um, and, and what our, our current status is right now of research. Um, so all of the research that I do is is very applied, trying to come up with management solutions. Uh, I work most closely with the grape industry um, and, and working in vineyards because that's where we're seeing by far the most drastic impact. And so we have a lot of research that we're doing there to try to better understand sort of the behavior, the biology, and try out some of these new management options that we've kind of um, thought up. So we're conducting trials right now to understand what other crops might be uh, affected by spotted lanternfly feeding damage. And so a lot of the trials we've done have focused on, on some of these specialty crops. We've worked uh, with, with hops, with tree fruit, with cucumbers, raspberries, uh, kiwi, fig. We're also looking at avocado and some other uh, crops that we don't grow here, but trying to give a risk assessment to uh, other states that do grow those crops. Are, are you seeing... Um a lot of damage in those already? I, I know grapes is the big one. Yeah, so grapes is absolutely the big one. They they really like to feed on grapes. Um, the other ones that we're still pretty worried about um, in the immediate sense would certainly be hops. Now in Pennsylvania, we don't produce a ton of hops. Um, so those hop growers that are here um, might have some issues controlling them, but certainly as this pest spreads, um, other areas which produce more hops, it might be very problematic as well. Um, kiwi does seem, and, and we do produce some hardy kiwi here in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere in the Northeast, and that does seem to be a, a good host for them as well. 
Um, ones that were we haven't ruled out necessarily, but look less likely are things like tree fruit, which is uh, super surprising to us, but it doesn't seem like uh, both apples and peaches are necessarily desired hosts. Now, they do feed on it. They, they will certainly feed on, on those uh, tree fruit, but at this point, it hasn't seemed to be so attractive to them. It seems like there's other things out there in the landscape that they prefer to feed on. So if they do feed on that tree fruit, it's only for about a week, maybe two weeks. And actually, the good news is that we haven't, uh, I've never met a, a tree fruit grower who's actually sprayed or, or put a management um, uh, effort down for spotted lanternfly. The only caveat there is that they're certainly a nuisance. And of course, we have lots of farm markets. We rely on you pick, and then we run into some issues where, you know, the public dreams up a fall day out picking apples, not being assaulted by potted lantern flies. So that's certainly still a problem for us in the tree fruit industry. I wanted to ask about the control methods. Um, I know uh, there are certain funguses that were being looked at. Are they uh, turning out to be effective? Yes, yeah, so um, the, the backstory is there that um, back in 2015, we actually found um, a fungus, a very common fungus, but a fungus that attacks insects attacking spotted lanternfly. Now, this isn't a particularly surprising finding because this is a generalist fungus that attacks all sorts of different insects, but it was exciting because this particular fungus can be um, or is commercialized. And so it's something that you can actually buy and spray and, and sort of boost those natural levels of fungus that you have. So it's soil borne, it's something that's OMRI listed, so it's an organic product. Um, and because again, you can kind of manipulate those levels of fungus that exist in the environment, we decided to go ahead and take that commercial product and see if we could spray it in a landscape area to really reduce those populations of spotted lanternfly. So last year in 2019, we did this kind of in small plot trials where we had high levels of lanternfly and kind of um, split these plots in half where half were sprayed with water and the other half were sprayed with this fungus. We just looked at how that would influence the population. And what we found is that when we sprayed on nymphs, we actually saw about a 46% reduction in those populations. When we sprayed on adults, we really didn't get great luck, probably related to the mobility of those adults. So, so kind of... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. You, you said the nymphs, you saw a 46% reduction? Correct, yep. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so that, I mean, that was very encouraging to us with just one application. We were able to actually reduce the population by 46%. That, that was pretty good for us. Um, and so what we decided to do this coming year in 2020 was um, go bigger, right? Go bigger, go home. Um, and so really the, the premise of this is looking for something that can influence the population of spotted lanternfly across a landscape scale approach. So right now the, the main methods that USDA, Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, other folks are using to control spotted lanternfly is predominantly tree by tree. And what I mean by that is they're going to tree of heaven and treating that tree, but not necessarily the entire landscape. And so while that is an effective approach at, at killing lots of lanternfly, we can potentially make that better. However, our main kind of issue with improving that is that we just don't have something that we can spray across the landscape without harming other wildlife or, or other insects. So what we did this past year is spray uh, this fungus both from helicopters, so aerial-based applications, but also ground-based applications over larger plots to see if we can really, really reduce populations. And we actually sprayed three different kinds of those nymphs uh, earlier in the season. Again, seeing if we can really, really draw down those populations and make a big impact and give another tool to you know, USDA and others working on control. 
um, we're still working on, on sort of tabulating the results and understanding what impact we had, but unfortunately it doesn't look as good as we initially hoped. Um, so likely this is a tool in our toolbox, but we didn't see that complete reduction or really get to a point where we felt comfortable saying it was worth the cost, it was worth the labor. The good news is our non-target impacts are very, very low with this method, but again, we're still working on ways that we can refine application and get even better control. Right. Um, I know uh, another tool is the modified circle traps, um, but I guess, the, would you say that that's more of a kind of a, a local tree to tree kind of? Yeah, you know, I think um, the modified circle traps, um, so it's basically a, a inverted funnel, if you will, on the tree. And so as lanternfly are walking up the tree, they, they go into this sort of minnow trap, if you will, and, and get captured. So I think that's a good option for homeowners or maybe folks that are looking for monitoring on their property. So for, for people who don't yet have lanternfly or maybe are at the edge of the quarantine zone, um, especially for vineyards, you know, if they want to know when they have a spotted lanternfly infestation, they can certainly use those traps on their tree of heaven on their property and, and monitor that way. In terms of um, management, especially agricultural management, I don't think it becomes as as practical in terms of, of actually trapping them. We, we are working on some other projects to see if we can kind of manipulate their behavior and their attraction to tall objects. Um, but in terms of the circle traps, I think that's mostly a, a resident um, backyard type uh, management. Uh, you had, you just said um, their attraction to tall objects. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, yeah. So um, this time of year, actually right now, is prime time for spotted lanternfly, so mid-September. Um, and the adults in particular, but both the nymphs and adults, are very attracted to tall objects. Um, so we'll often see them climbing the top of trees. Uh, but the adults also reach this dispersal period, which we believe is related to mating, um, and they will climb every single tall object that they can find. Um, I, I've gotten um, phone calls from people up on the 26th floor uh, of their apartment building, and they see in, in Philadelphia, and they see spotted lanternfly climbing up there. Um, so we know they, they like height, they like to go up, um, and so we're trying to see if we can sort of manipulate that um, and and sort of use that out those tall objects as a trap within an agricultural setting to really pull them away from you know the the crops that they're trying to feed on um, and focus them in more so on that attraction to tall objects. Um, another uh, thing that was brought up was the use of trained dogs. Is that um, being used? Is that is that helpful? Yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty exciting. Um, so Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture just just found out that they um, have funds to get a dog, and so they've secured a, a detector dog. Um, folks in New York has, have also been using detector dogs for the past year or so, and what we're finding is it's actually very effective. Um, so these dogs are trained to smell out lanternfly, uh, and then they'll be taken on inspections and walkthroughs of, of trucks, of rail cars, and, and various areas especially related to transportation to help kind of make sure that we're not accidentally spreading lanternfly. It can also give us a good indication of where to look most commonly on say a semi truck where we tend to get those lanternfly um, at. And they, they're very sensitive. Um, in many cases, they, they're able, the most common place that they'll find spotted lanternfly is on the grill and it's usually just a, a wing fragment. Um, and so they're actually able to, to smell that out and um, detect that. So it's, it's a pretty cool method and, and um, it's working out quite well so far. 
Cool. I had also just seen, um, I think it was a, maybe a student project, I want to say at DelVal, um, where they were looking for folks to submit pictures of birds eating lanternflies. And I think they're just looking to see if that's something that happens. Is that something you've seen um, happen? Are, are birds eating them or birds avoiding them? Or is that something we can... Yeah, so that's um, actually a graduate student project at, at Penn State in our in our department. Um, okay. So she's, she's trying to collect um, basically citizen science um, observations of birds eating lanternfly. Um, and we have had a lot of student projects um, and 4-H projects and things like that of people who, you know, are trying to understand will birds eat lanternfly and so feeding, you know, ground up lanternfly to guinea fowl and trying to understand if, if they're okay with it, if they wait, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so some really cool stuff that's out there. And what we're finding is that the number of incidences of birds um, being reported to eat spotted lanternfly has actually increased. Um, so that's, that's really exciting for us. Um, we're starting to see birds learn to eat spotted lanternfly. I think the most common one that we've really heard about this with um, is uh, woodpeckers, uh, mostly uh, uh, the smaller woodpeckers like Harry's and Woody, uh, Harry um, woodpeckers, um, but certainly we're also seeing things like wrens eat spotted lanternfly too. So all very exciting and, and potentially, you know, if that associative learning increases in those birds, we could see, you know, um, them being responsible for reducing our population, or at least helping us out. So that's very exciting for us. Yeah, and just just to reiterate, you said you are seeing an increase in birds. Yes, at least an increase in reports. It's hard to know. You know we don't have baseline data of when spotted lanternfly first invaded, how many birds were consuming lanternfly. Um, but certainly we're seeing more reports now of, of the public and of researchers out and about seeing um, spotted lanternfly being eaten by birds. Okay, that's... That's encouraging, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, we certainly see generalist predators as well, like praying mantises and spiders and things like that. But birds are, are kind of our, our better bet in terms of thinking about population reduction. What's the, I guess, what's the overall outlook um, going into next year? Is there, are there, are there other, I mean, you're, you're gathering data you know, do you have sort of, are you formulating plans now for uh, what you're going to look at next year? Are we looking at a larger expansion next year? Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to say um, whether or not lanternfly is going to continue to spread, you know, in terms of new detections next year. Um, I would probably suggest yes. I mean, again, just if we follow that trajectory, if we follow the fact that we have a very high population, especially in populated areas, thinking about, you know, um, Philly and New Jersey and these greater um, populated areas and how high the populations are this year, um, even though people are maybe traveling less, they're probably traveling more to parks, outdoor areas, camping. And so I, I think the potential is always out there. Um, I, I do know that the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture and, and U.S. Department of Agriculture are working very, very hard this year to focus on treating these sort of high-risk pathways. 
Um, predominantly that means rail lines, but it can also mean highways, rest stops, uh, certainly the Port of Philadelphia and other ports are included in that as well. Um, but basically what they're seeing is that spread is, is very closely associated with rail lines. And so they're, they're really targeting those areas and trying to make sure that we have control in those areas to really limit that spread. Um, so hopefully at the same time, we can you know, encourage more people to check their belongings before they go camping, before they go maybe tailgating now, um, to really understand you know, that we don't want this pest to new areas and we're trying to reduce that spread as much as possible. The PDA is also focused pretty heavily on trying to reduce populations or potentially entirely eliminate the populations of these new quarantine areas. Um, so sort of, you know, the population near Pittsburgh, Altoona, they're trying to really see if they can eradicate or, or locally um, get rid of all of those lanternfly in that new area because the populations are very small. So if we have any chance of, of getting them out of those areas right now, this is our chance. Um. So I guess in terms of what farmers um, can do either within the quarantine area or out even outside the quarantine area, what what can what can we be looking to to do to kind of stop stop the spread um, or eliminate them in, in our areas? Yeah, so in terms of, um, you know, agricultural businesses and things like that, I think certainly being in compliance with the permit system um, and typically being in compliance with it, making sure that any shipment you uh, send out uh, is free of lanternfly, um, especially any, any living lanternfly, that's the most important part, right? So we don't want to spread a new population to a new area. Mm -hmm. So certainly being, you know, certainly in compliance with those permit um, requirements. Uh, the other thing I would say is making sure that, especially if you have UPIC operations, you have people coming in from other states, other parts of the state, make sure that they're aware of spotted lanternfly. We often, you know, I'll, I'll go through parking lots all the time and I'll see lanternfly everywhere. They'll be attached to your wheel well, um, you know, potentially jumping into your car. And so we know that that just humans traveling can, can also spread this insect. Um, so I would say try to do your due diligence and, and educate your customers as well. Um, again, especially if you have that um, engagement with with the general public, because I, you know, I don't know that we're gonna we're gonna win this fight. I think spotted lanternfly is, is here to stay, but we can certainly reduce that spread and slow that spread as much as possible, so that we come up with other management uh, techniques during this time that will hopefully be more sustainable and and better for the long term uh, in terms of really reducing population. So, so in the future, you you see kind of um, what the us kind of reaching an an, e an equilibrium with the spotted lanternfly is that? I you know I hope so. Um, it's it's hard to say. Eventually, that will happen, right? Um, so, but it's just hard to say how soon that's going to happen. But very similar to something like Japanese beetle or maybe gypsy moth or stink bug, other invasive pests that have come in. Um, and each one is a little bit different, right? So sometimes we have occasional outbreaks, say of Japanese beetle, it could be a really bad year. Um, and, and most of the time it's pretty steady or other times it's just completely steady um, invasive. My, my thinking is it'll probably, we'll probably have outbreak years in the future, but it won't be as significant as, as what we're experiencing right now. So again, if we can just get to that point and find ways that we can get to that point sooner, um, I think we'll be better off, especially in terms of protecting other agricultural businesses like other vineyards, um, say in the Finger Lakes region and Long Island and Erie, um, to really hopefully protect those industries before it gets there.
we know that we don't know um, the, the full impact of spotted lanternfly. So we've done a lot of estimating of economic impacts so far. We've, we've estimated that damage has been about $50 million per year um, within the current quarantine area. So certainly as that expands, we expect that to grow. Um, and of course, those, those are all estimates. Um, but I would say that row crop producers um, and other, other ones that I haven't really mentioned um, during our conversation are not necessarily not at risk. Um, we do find populations of spotted lanternfly in corn, in soybean. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily causing much significant feeding damage. I think it's more of a, a truck stop for them, right? They're just passing through, moving on to other hosts that they want to eat. But we have had reports of spotted lanternfly getting um, uh, caught up in harvesters, in some cases, lots of spotted lanternfly, depending you know, on where you are in the quarantine area. Um, and so depending on, on where that product is going at the end of the day, you could end up with you know, spotted lanternfly bodies ground up and say, feed. And so we're trying to understand what the impact of that is and make sure that you know, we don't have any potential toxicity problems with spotted lanternfly, which has been you know, potentially mentioned. Uh, so that as we're as we're feeding, um, we're not going to potentially make any animals sick. So that is something that we're looking at, and uh, it's an ongoing developing project. And so for those folks that you know might be listening and have experience with spotted lanternfly, or maybe are having a spotted lanternfly infestation on their farm, and notice something that I'm not mentioning, um, definitely reach out because the more observations we have, the more people um, uh, helping us understand you know, what this pest is doing to our agricultural community, the better off I think we'll be. Right. So how can, how can folks uh, reach you? Who should they call if they're, if they're seeing something? Yeah. So um, they can certainly uh, reach out to me directly. Um, at, um, HLL50 at PSU.edu. Uh, but we also have a hotline that folks can call if they just want to kind of report an observation. And, and I will also end up uh, getting funneled to that report. Um, so our hotline number, our call center is 1-888-422-3359. And calling that, you can also report a spotted lanternfly sighting as well. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's something uh, I hadn't thought about or heard about was the idea of sort of lanternflies getting caught up in, in other things. You know, kind of you think about it at, in terms of them directly eating, you know, or affecting a crop like the grapes and killing the vines and, and spreading that mold and stuff. But, uh, you know, that concept of them sort of just being in stuff they shouldn't be in, um, that, that's something I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're still, um, corn, I think, is the um, biggest focus we have right now because we see it fairly often. And I think almost it's related to the height of the crop and general um, tendency to put corn next to vineyards. We see that a lot throughout Pennsylvania. Um, and I'm actually working on a marker capture experiment. I was out last night with a UV flashlight, um, you know, trying to find my, my fluorescent marked bugs. Um, and what we're finding is that they can be in the corn and when they're released in the corn, they move through it pretty quickly. So they don't necessarily stay there, but there's definitely can be a resident population, especially at the edge of your blocks, um, which, you know, can, again, potentially get into um, uh, other products and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's not just direct feeding damage, it's quarantine compliance. It's trying to make sure we keep them out just in general, um, but then of course that feeding damage as well. Okay. 
Well, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I am, I am feeling optimistic about where we are. I think we understand a lot more about the basic needs and, and behavior of spotted lanternfly, um, but there's also certainly that recognition that we have a lot more work to do. All right. Um, thank you very much for your time, and um, I think we had a good conversation here and covered some some interesting developments. Um, and uh, good luck in the in the field, I guess, the rest of this uh, uh, season. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing the story. And um, yeah, if you if you ever want an update, just feel free to reach out. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for talking to us, and have a good day. Thanks. You too. Take care. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way, and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.